This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Science with Dr. Carl podcast. On today's show, bionic humans, floaters and eye transplants. We're sifting through questions like why do bones stop growing? Why does having to pee take over all of your thoughts? And what would happen if you microwaved a human being? All of that coming up on the Science with Dr. Carl podcast. It's a special Body Week edition as well. I'm Tyrone. Let's hop into it. How are you doing, Dr. Carl? Very well, thank you, Dr. Tyrone. I'm very happy to be involved with this body show and an important part of the body, of course, is the virus that's going around attacking us. And yesterday, uh, in my letterbox, I got a sealed envelope uh, saying, to the adult householder, urgent communication, open sealed section to view. So bubbling with anticipation, I opened the sealed section and there I found a poorly written email from somebody who claims to be Clive Palmer um, (laughs) writing to the Deputy Secretary for Health Product Regulation in the Department of Health, and in this he claims that Australia has bought over 180 million doses of the vaccine. Mm, I'm not Mm. seeing any of that. And then secondly, (laughs) this Clive Palmer complains or says that um, that there have been 318 deaths after COVID-19 vaccine. Well, I'd like to point out that each year, on average, there's about 45 million deaths worldwide each year. And practically every single one of them happens after that person has drunk water or milk. Mm. Maybe 50 years later or 80 <laughs> years later or something. So have, have these been 380 deaths caused by COVID-19 vaccine? No. Have 318 <laughs> people died after having COVID-19 vaccine? Sure. So... Look, and by the way, look, if you want to really learn about vaccination, go to my uh, Twitter feed, uh, sorry, my uh, TikTok, which is Dr. Carl, and I have done an entirely non-intellectual discussion about why you should get vaccinated. And let me just say, I'm channeling my inner punk. Get back! Now what this information, I'm getting the cranks and it's a source of frustration. Get back! Get back! stop the Oh, we're bobbing along to this one. I was going to bring it up. Uh, Big presence on TikTok, Dr. Carl, but I saw this TikTok that you made, this song about getting vaxxed and channeling your inner punk, all right. I mean, what sort of brought it about to make a song? Um, Music, okay, there are some languages on earth where the words for song, for music and dance are the same. And I just love music. Mm. I, I love the Jays and I love hearing new stuff. Now, unfortunately, what happens with some people is, or the majority of people is that whatever music they're, he- happening be- they're hearing between puberty and their early 20s gets imprinted on them as the only good music ever and everything else is just crap. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like the experiment that was done with baby ducks where the first thing that a baby duck sees when it comes out of the egg, it thinks is its mother. And usually it's a female mother duck, but sometimes it can be a human or a dog. And so the early psychologists did experiments to find themselves being followed by these little baby ducklings everywhere, ignoring their mother. So uh, I'm just loving new music and punk is a small part of that rich panoply of glorious music. So there is a bit of inner punk in me. Yes, it is. It's a very broad uh, thing, music, but you've done well. You've delivered this TikTok and a new song about getting vaxxed. And I want to talk about uh, vaccines here. We've got some questions coming in on the text line. 0439 is where you can get your questions in. But I'm going to Lee. 
Texting in from Gadigal Country in Sydney. Lee, how you doing? Good, thank you. Now, you've got a question for Dr. Carl. Hit us with it. Good morning, Dr. Carl. Um, I was very excited to get my first uh, dose of the vaccine yesterday, and I was just wondering, why does your arm hurt for a couple of days afterwards? Okay, so what they've done is they've shoved in maybe a mill of stuff. If it was plain old salt water with the same saltiness as your body, mate, it would just vanish. But in fact, it's something that's designed to be irritating. Think about relationships. Think about a pearl forming. You need a grit inside that oyster. And from that bit of grit, you get a a beautiful pearl. And in a relationship, if there's a bit of friction, you get something better coming out. You don't want, uh, you know, mean friction. And so in the case of the injection, there is stuff there that is designed to irritate your immune system and make it do stuff that it wouldn't do if it was having a sleep. And so what it will do is over the next couple of weeks, manufacture antibodies and learn how to do that. And it takes a couple of weeks. And all sorts of other reactions are going on. That's a really dumb phrase on my part, all sorts of other reactions. But um, part of that is that you can get various uh, fevers. What were your reactions there, Dr. Lee? You oh, just um, had the um, uh, pain in the arm, but did you have tiredness or? No, that was nothing. It. It's been amazing. In my case, just, I had it on the, sorry, go on. No, no, I'm just so excited. It was, it was just so sad driving through an empty city and this feels like the first steps to, to life coming back. It will be important, but remember uh, that they're not perfect. Uh, like if a person is uh, using contraception, they can still get pregnant. If you are wearing a seatbelt, you can still die in a motor vehicle collision, but you're getting incredible levels of protection huge amounts of protection from having the vaccine. And so your immune system spends a couple of weeks learning how to make the antibodies and then if it should ever experience the real virus, instead of taking a couple of weeks to make the antibodies, we're talking hours and you'll live, not die. And you probably would not even know that you nearly died. That's the beauty of the vaccines. And by the way, the very best vaccine we have is the um, vaccine against yellow fever which gives 98% protection against infection. So, look, nothing's perfect. Like, whenever the Muslims make a prayer rug, whenever the Amish make a quilt, they deliberately put in a mistake to show that nothing made by humans is perfect. But gosh darn, they give a good level of protection. Mm, Thank you, Lee, for coming through with that question. Now, staying on the topic of jabs, we've got Paul testing in from Croydon Park here. And I'm going to throw to Paul because he's had a bit of a reaction to his vaccine shot. Paul, how you doing, man? G'day, doctors. How are you both? Good, thank good. you. That's good. That's good. Um, I'm a bit jealous of um, Dr. Lee with her sore arm. Um, I had my first uh, AstraZeneca jab yesterday. Um, I'm in my late 30s. I'm fit. I don't smoke. Barely drink. Good diet. And uh, it's smashed me. I'm, I'm in bed. Chills, aching limbs, sore joints, um, very mild headache. Um, both of my parents have had their first vaccine is due to go back for their second and they're fine and they're they're carrying a bit of weight um and they're not as don't have as quite as active a lifestyle as mine i was just wondering why does this affect people in different ways especially people who are fit versus those who aren't as fit 
Man, I'm feeling your pain. It's so unfair. You've done all the right things and you do exercise and you probably have broccoli for dinner every night and have five serves of vegetables <laughs> and yet you're getting hammered whereas your parents just lie around having cocktails and cups of tea and slices of cake and they got nothing. Um, it, it, it is incredibly variable. Um, the reason is that the immune system is so complicated. So when I went through being a medical doctor, each term they give you a big fat book with about 2,000 pages to learn on cardiology, hematology, pathology or whatever. But in immunology, all they give you is a skinny little book the size of a pamphlet. Oh, they don't give it to you. You have to buy it. Um, and you're thinking, oh, well, immunology would be fairly easy. And you go in there and then suddenly you're into these feedback loops. And so this chemical stimulates something when it's at a high level, but at a low level, it actually inhibits the other, other reaction unless there's a third chemical present, in which case it does something in between. But if there's a fourth chemical, then you get an entirely different reaction and it's like this tangled web of spaghetti. So it is traditionally thought among the medical people that the immunologists are the really clever ones who can understand this thing. So the answer to it, if you ask any of the medical doctors, always begins with the three magic words of... It's very complicated, which is another way of saying we don't know. So you're having fevers. Are you also, Paul, are you having incredible lassitude or tiredness? So all you can do is sit back and watch bad TV? Um, it's not quite that bad, but I don't really want to get up and do much. Well, so, well in my yeah, case, I, I, I had the injection on the Saturday midday. Uh, Sunday morning I was fine, maybe a bit off colour. By 11 o'clock I was in bed so tired that all I could do was watch bad TV, which I then did for the next half day. And by midday I had raging fevers of 39 and my wife thought it was great because I was so toasty warm overnight and I woke up the next day a bit off colour and half an hour later I was terrific. So you will come through almost certainly. You, the odds are so much in your favour that you'll come through and be protected from uh, the nasty virus. Best of luck, mate. Sorry. Now, Dr. Carl, I have a question for you. Let's kick things off. I just want to ask, what is your favourite body part and why, of course? Uh, of course, my favourite body part is the uter house or uterus. And the reason is that it's we all came from one and it starts off as this tiny little organ in a human female, roughly the size of a clenched fist and then grows up to be the size of a shopping bag. A shopping, a shopping bag, bag, right? And it's got a whole entire human inside it and it's keeping that human alive and is various other things that protect that little human inside. And by the way, if you want to gross out the kids at a birthday party, uh, <laughs> let them know that they spent the first nine months of their life floating in their own urine and drinking it. And then it's delivering maybe, um, I forget, it's, it's quite a lot of blood, I forget the exact number so I won't say it, uh, to the baby each minute. And then during an average delivery, the amount of blood lost is maybe 120, 200 mils, which is like a cup of blood. And that's because the arteries have got arteries in the uterus have got this wonderful spiral structure that as the uterus closes down, the spiral sort of contracts on itself and it just closes off and that's why it's my favourite organ. And what's your favourite organ, Dr Tyrone? Oh, I don't know about organ, but I think my favourite body part would have to be the eye. I don't know. It's something about the eye that just draws me to it. In particular, the iris. I feel it's just, you know, so different in every single person. It can be brown, green, blue, anything in between. Uh, there's just something about eyes. I don't know. 
Ah, so you're not the sort of person who halfway through a relationship after a few months they say, okay, Tyrone, as they turn away from you, what colour are my eyes? And you've never looked in their eyes. You're, you're the person who's been swimming in the soul of their eyes yes. for the last couple of months. Yes, 100%. I fire back with blue sprinkled with, you know, green in that eye. I know what your eye colour is. Uh, but, yeah, they're just there's something so beautiful about them. Um, let's jump into some science questions. We are talking all things body, and I want to throw it to Grant here. He has a question coming in from Wollongong about bones. Grant, my man, how you doing? Yeah, very well, mate. Yourself? Not too bad. What's your question? Hit Dr. Carl with it. Mate, Dr. Carl, I want to know how do bones know when to stop growing in the human body? Like at what point do they just stop growing? How does the body tell it to stop growing? Ah, it's mapped into the DNA, which is a really dumb answer, but let me take you through it. So you've got about 300 plus bones when you're born, and some of them are quite soft and not fully ossified. That's a fancy word meaning turned into bone. And by the time you've turned into an adult human, you've got about 214 bones or something like that. Now, the bone is made of collagen. And let me point out for those of you who are wrongly thinking that you can get incredibly good skin by drinking collagen, that there's a couple of dozen different types of collagen. So your bone is made of a mixture of collagen and various minerals involving calcium. And then there's two ways that the bone can harden. So this is when it stops growing. There's two ways. One is that the entire bone all the way through it just begins to harden and that's one sort of ossification or calcification. And that would be, for example, the flat bones in your skull. And the other one is that the long bones have these two ossification centres, usually at the end of each bone, and they begin to harden from the end and the ends keep moving apart. So your bones keep on growing more solid stuff towards the middle. They keep on growing, growing. And they kind of finish in your early 20s, but there is some sort of bone growth even into the 30s and 40s um, because the bone is a dynamic organ. So what happens is that your bone gets destroyed by creatures, by cells called osteoclasts with the letter C, and they get the calcium and they throw it into your bloodstream and then into your, it goes into your bowel and into the toilet system, then to a beach near you, which is how we do sewage in Australia. And then other cells called osteoblasts, B for blast, B for build, they rebuild your bones. And so all the calcium atoms are replaced roughly every 10 years. So even though your bone has different atoms, it still keeps the same shape. And the clock is somewhere, and we haven't found it yet, is somewhere in your DNA, and you can remodel your bone. So we've been looking at the bones of Neanderthal men and women. And the men, the, the, the women, the women seem to have uncommonly strong bones and therefore muscles in the part of their arm between the elbow and the wrist. And then working back from what we see in so-called primitive societies around the world, we say, ah, so they spend a lot of time cleaning hides. Mm, very, very interesting stuff. I mean, if U9 Science taught me anything, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Carl, longest bone in the body is the femur? I don't know. Uh, I would go with that. That sounds reasonable. Uh, um, you, you rock, Dr. Tyrone. Yeah, thank you very much. Heading over to Brendan now. Thank you, Grant, from Wollongong for the question about when do your bones stop growing? But we're heading to Canberra now with Brendan, Dr. Brendan. He has a question about bionic humans and the species in a few years. Brendan, how you doing? Yeah, not bad, mate. Yourself? Not too bad. Hit us with the question. 
Yeah, so um, I've often wondered uh, where the human race will be uh, bionically in sort of 10, 50 or 100 years. Probably take the 10 first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, well, there's two aspects. One is implantable electronics and already there's over 100,000 humans on our planet with computers implanted in their brains to help them deal with Parkinson's disease Alzheimer's disease and um, uh, Huntington's disease. So look up the videos from Nature magazine and you'll see this poor person with Parkinson's disease and they can barely speak, they can barely move and they hit the button and then that triggers the computer in their brain and then suddenly they can speak fluently and clearly. So one side is the electronic side and the other side is the genetic manipulation and the tool will be some sort of genetic engineering tool and two female scientists won the Nobel Prize last year for inventing um, CRISPR-Cas9. So CRISPR, it doesn't matter what, it's a genetic engineering tool, it doesn't matter what it stands for or that it was discovered in yogurt in 2007, but what it can do. And what it can do, we think in the future, is turn a living Rottweiler into a living Chihuahua. Not that the Rottweiler changes, gives birth to a Chihuahua, but rather that it changes. And so if you want to be an Olympic-grade gymnast, mate, shrink yourself way down because gymnasts are short. But if you want to be an Olympic rower, make yourself taller. And if you don't want to get skin cancer, get yourself a jet black skin. So these two will advance in the future. And even though we'll be able to genetically modify ourselves to live in different environments, I reckon such as on the surface of Mars without a spacesuit, or in the oceans without water, this is really a long way ahead, at the same time we'll have electronic implants which will be, I'm guessing, because I read too much science fiction, quantum computers. So you'll have access. So you'll be able to swim in the oceans and live there but have access to all the knowledge of humanity through a super-fast quantum computer. Yeah, I know, I read too much science fiction. I'm sorry. (laughs) Now, I mean, if we're going back to year nine, year nine ICT did not teach me that, Dr. Carl. I don't know. But I want to head to this question from Jamie texting in from Nam, Melbourne. And it's something that I can relate to. I mean, I'm drinking a lot of water right now. I need to go to the toilet every probably 10 minutes or so. Uh, And Jamie has come through a question about busting for a pee. What's your question, Jamie? Hi, guys. Yeah, just a quick one. Why is it so distracting when you're busting for a pee to just finish the simplest of tasks? Ah, the um, we have a good lesson given to us by a scientific paper back in 2011 called, called Doorways Cause Forgetting. Now, just think about that for a minute and we'll answer the question about the pee. So you've been working in your one room, you go through the hallway, you go into the kitchen and then suddenly you think, why am I in the kitchen? (laughs) And then you think, oh, yeah, I was going to get a glass of water. Then you go back to what you were doing and you're thinking, what was I doing before? And this is not early onset dementia, but rather the doorway and the different environment. I feel like this is me in lockdown at the moment. My life is real life Sims. I'm walking around the house, the lounge room, the kitchen, and I often wonder why I'm here. I thought I'd just add that in. Mate, it's happening to all of us. It's not early onset dementia. It's the different environment. So this begins with us humans or what would become us humans coming out of the jungles about two million years ago and walking into the open plains. In the jungle, the threat is the killer gorilla and everything else, and so you're always on the lookout for the gorilla. But as soon as you walk out of the physical jungle onto the physical open plains or savannah, you've got to look out for the flash of khaki colour in the undergrowth 
because it might be a lion. If you immediately forget the past and concentrate on what's about to kill you in the, right now, you will survive. And we are the descendants of those people who did that. And so when you go into the kitchen, Dr. Tyrone, you might think you're just walking into the kitchen, but instead inside your brain there's this fight like um, John Wick where you're walking into a room with guns and everything and you walk into the room and you're going, checking out the killer dishwasher, the killer <laughs> microwave, the killer sink. Okay, the room's ready to enter and you go in there and you spend so much time thinking about other things that you forgot why you went in there. Mm. So one way around it is just to write on the on the hand. Australians are the only people I know of that write stuff on their hand. Like, have you found that? If you've been overseas, Tyrone, and you write something on your hand and people say, what are you doing? You say, I'm writing on my hand. And they'll say in America or England or Spain, no, I've never seen anybody do that. You must be some sort of god. <laughs> so the first thing you can do is write it on your hand, go to the kitchen to have a glass of water, or number two, walk out and come back in again. So getting back to Jamie's thing, because you really want to pee, it is occupying all your mental processing power. It's just covering up everything that you need to think about and that's why you can't do it because you can't truly multi-process. Very few people can multitask. Jade, who's texted in from the Gold Coast and she's got a question about smoking. Quite an interesting one as well. How are we doing, Dr Jade? Oh, hi. I'm well, thanks. I'm good. That's good. What was your question that you have for us? Okay, Dr. Carl, um, can you please explain how smoking directly damages the P53 gene and how this would affect the natural healing process of a disease in the body? Ooh. Okay, so the P53 gene uh, was discovered maybe 20 years ago and it was called the gene of the year and rather confusingly they gave it that name, P53, to the protein, the major protein that the gene makes. So you, the term P for papa, P53, refers both to the gene and the protein that it makes. And it seems to be a healing and anti-inflammatory gene. And the biologist, the what we call, there's a field of knowledge called physiology, where you look at how the body works, and the comparative physiologists have worked out that um, there's something weird going on with elephants. They've got something like 100 times our body mass and cancers happen at random in the body. How come they don't have 100 times as many cancers? In fact, how come they have 10 or 20 times fewer cancers? And the thing is that they have on their DNA not just two or three copies of the P53 gene but about 20 or 30 and so we can further down the line with genetically, genetic engineering engineer ourselves in such a way that we get extra copies of the P53 gene in our DNA without having bad effects and hopefully we'll cut down on cancers, but that's a long way in the future. So I don't know the specific pathway, biochemical pathway, by which cigarette smoking damages it, but there are so many chemicals in tobacco that then get turned into so many other chemicals by burning them that uh, some of the pathways have been worked out, I, and I know those, but I don't know the ones for P53. But definitely uh, the, the answer to the question is I don't know. Mm. Okay. Some very interesting stuff there. I want to jump into, look, a question that is quite, <laughs> I'm very keen to know what the answer to this question is. Dr. Holly from Newcastle has called in with it. Dr. Holly, how you doing? Good. How are you? I am Welcome. good. Yeah. You have got a burning question. Excuse the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Hit us with it. 
Um, so I would like to know what would happen to a human if they were microwaved? Believe it or not, when I was a junior doctor, I had some patients who deliberately microwaved themselves. For, for what? Sounding a bit of gas there, right? <laughs> okay, so these were – so I was working as a junior doctor in a government health repatriation hospital. And so all the veterans would go to that hospital. And there were some people going there who had been in the Second World War and they were on ships and they were travelling to Russia in the Atlantic in the middle of winter and it was very cold, as you would imagine, mm. Russia, uh, Ocean, Atlantic, middle of the winter, right? And they were freezing and their job was to be outside. Everybody else was inside the ship, inside, yeah, being warm. They were on the outside being physical lookouts. They had radar, but they had to have physical lookouts as well. And they worked out pretty quickly that if they just stood in front of the radar beam, it would warm them up. And so they'd sort of get really cold even though they had multiple layers and then every now and then when they were really cooling down, they deliberately put themselves in front of the radar beam and then warm up and then uh, get out of it again. And they warm them up gently. So what microwaves do to the human or to anything is that they just warm it up. The energy is absorbed and turned into heat. Of course, if you get too hot, you can make... Bad, bad things happen, like just leave some milk in a cup in your microwave for 10 minutes. Oh, my God, it's the most revolting mess. And we've analysed that milk and we've found that there are cancer-causing chemicals in it. So the the excessive heat is what has turned the ordinary chemicals into cancer-causing he- chemicals. But these people never got themselves too hot. They just sort of warmed up just a little bit and got out of the beam. And uh, a lot of them would had this trick. They said, look, we shouldn't really talk about it because it was, we were told not to do it, but we did it because it was so cold. And they didn't seem to get any cancers. They just warmed them up. Does that cost Kind of answer your question, Dr. Holly, a little bit? Yeah. So if you were microwave for a long period of time, you'd probably get cancer cells. Oh, yeah, because you are overheating, but you'd be dead by then because the water would gradually heat up and then once you got past 42 degrees, you'd be dead anyway. And the cancer-causing chemicals get formed up around 70, 80 degrees, but a human would be dead by... 42, so you'd be dead before you could get the chemicals that would turn into cancer. But the microwaves themselves, you know, like the phones and the microwave ovens, they do not, they've never been proven to cause cancer directly in humans. Oh, cool. Thanks, Dr. Carl. Thank, Thank you, Dr. Holly. Dr. Holly. And let's just hope that you are not out here putting yourself in a microwave for the most part. <laughs> I mean, Come on, but very interesting stuff there. Um, I want to head to Bathurst now. Dr. Tim has called in with a question about, look, honestly, blowfly up your nose. Tell us a bit more, Dr. Tim. Thank you, doctors. Um, Yeah, back in the summer, I was mowing my grass and a big blowfly went up my nose and it took me a little while to get it out. I was able to flush it out. But when I got the thing out, it had all these little wriggly sort of um, larvae coming out of it. And it really grossed me out. And I, I just was worried that they could have gone further up inside my, my sinus passages and maybe even mm. sort of grown and hung around in there. And I just wondered if that was um, a possibility or if the body can fight back and, and uh, purge them. Um I don't know specifically about that species of botfly, of blowfly that you had, but it is well known in some parts of the world where there are many insects around and the environment is human and so the skin is always moist, where insects can invade, have babies, and those babies will survive in your body. Um, And 
Jimmy Carter, the ex-president of the United States, has been involved in bringing down one such parasite down to virtually zero levels all across the world. Um, I forget the name of the parasite. And in fact, there was a case of my little boy who went and hung around in South America and he came back and he had this sort of fungating mess on his head. It was sort of really yucky and we we didn't know what it was. So we organised a visit um, to to an infectious diseases officer and then uh, it turned out that he didn't actually go. But... He, he one day he said, look, I'm not going to go to the infectious diseases officer because it feels like, like it's not there. And my wife had just dropped him off somewhere and then she went to the school to pick up our little daughter and there was this huge bot fly. It had literally crawled out of his head onto the seat and my wife was sort of thinking, well, there's just some sort of insect that fell out of a tree, waved it at the daughter and said, ha-ha, look, this will come and get you. And then they just threw it out the window. And then when my son went to the hospital... When we went to a lot of trouble to organise this visit with an infectious diseases officer, they said, this looks like an exit wound. Whatever was in there has gone. And then suddenly we realised that the bot fly had been landed somewhere in downtown Coogee. But it would have died. It wasn't its natural environment. So I think you're okay there with regard to the insect. But just keep an eye on it because it could be something that could turn up in 10 or 20 years from now. So check with your doctor about that and maybe get them to check with an infectious diseases officer. This is something that um, is quite relevant to me because a friend just recently brought up the fact of spiders crawling in your mouth while you sleep. I don't know if it's a thing. Is it a thing, Dr. Carl? They can, but the environment further down is not very friendly to them. They're on a pathway where they're going to go down the esophagus into the stomach acids. They're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to survive that. Great. So you're telling me that there's no creepy crawlies in me if I'm swallowing spiders? Uh, Roughly slightly more than half of all the cells in your body are invaders, bacteria. You've got 37 trillion cells and about 40 trillion that came to you from your parents when they loved each other very much in a special way (laughs) your age and nine months ago. But about 40 trillion cells are bacteria that invaded you and you need them and they're your friends and if you didn't have them, you would, Dr Tyrone, be roughly two-thirds your weight, you would eat twice as much and you'd be very weak and sickly. You need those bacteria. I don't think you need insects, though. You don't, don't, Do not get insects. And, and don't go out getting extra bacteria. The ones you got are just fine in most cases. I can happily stay away from the insects, Dr. Carl. Uh, we're heading to Corey now, calling in from Ballina, and he is here to settle a debate at work. He's looking for a final ruling on a question. How you doing, Dr. Corey? Yeah, good, mate. Yourself? Good, good. Fire us with your question. Yeah, so we have a daily debate in the shed here. There's three of us in here, and uh, we have a certain someone, which I'm not going to name names, but always seems to be after he goes to the bathroom, he leaves a floater. Now, we always say it's unhealthy, but we need a final ruling on this one. Ah, so look, what what sort of work are you in, Corey? Are you a Um, Like manufacturing. Right, and do you have morning tea and afternoon tea? Does that stuff still exist? Yes, yes, might go on lunch. I loved that when I was a labourer, having morning tea and afternoon tea and just sort of relaxing. Okay, so the answer is basically that floaters are good and if you feel like being grossed out, go into Wikipedia and look up the Bristol, B-R-I-S-T-O-L, stool, S-T-O-O-L, which is a polite word for poo, scale. And it ranges from one to seven. And at one end, 
Number one, I think they're hard little lumps and you've just got constipation like crazy and it hurts. And at number seven, mate, it's just a mush and you've got the squirts. Is, is squirts a normal word to use outside <laughs> medical field? I think yeah, okay, so. You got the, yeah, okay. And then you want to be around three or four and there they should be floating, which implies that they've got just the right amount of fibre. To chase up on this more, go looking on the webpage known as The Conversation and look up uh, feces, floating stools, and Professor Claire Collins, um, and you'll find all sorts of stuff. So, uh, so just sort of gently floating is good. And by the way, to finish off, in Germany, the toilets are different, where they have a little platform where your poo lands, and then uh, when you finish your business, you can go and look at it and say, "Hmm, Bristol scale four, very good, Helmut, you have done well today." That's my terrible <laughs> German accent. <laughs> We are answering all your questions to do with the body. And now, Dr. Carl, you asked me a bit earlier, what was my favourite body part? And I did say it was the eye because I, I, there's something about it, you know. I don't know. It draws you in. So I want to jump right back into questions. I've got Daniel from Launceston here who's caught up with a question about eye transplants. Dr. Daniel, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Good. And yourself? Good, thank you. Welcome, Dr. So, Daniel. Lay it on us. Yeah, so basically, if it's possible to do an eye transplant from one person to another, if you take the right eye from someone and put it into the left eye socket of the person who needs it, will that eye be crossed over in vision or will their eye, like, their, will their vision be, you know, normal? Um, it should be normal, but there's a few tricks with the wiring of the eye and how it goes to being processed differently and why newborn babies are generally held on the left side. Let me run through it. So in the eye, you've got a couple of hundred million receptors that turn incoming light into electricity, which is then processed inside the retina. And then the information is sent through one million nerves. Now, the right and the left side information on each retina, the left eye and the right eye, the, it gets split over and then crossed over at a part of the brain called the optic chiasm. So in each case, the information that lands on the right side of your retina, we're assuming that you've been able to join up all the nerves perfectly, which we can't do with today's technology. In each case, the information that lands on the left side of a retina does a crossover in the brain and then ends up going to the left side of the brain, which is your supposed... Oh, sorry, it goes to the right side of the brain, which is your supposed emotional side. Now, when I was a medical doctor at the kids' hospital, part of, for a while I was checking out newborn babies, which I love to do, and I'd read about this study, so I decided to check it out on all the newborn mothers doing an experiment with them. And what I'd do is I'd examine their baby and then deliberately hand the baby back to the mother, With both, this is a two-day-old baby, one-day-old baby, hand the baby back to the mother along the centre line of the body. And practically all the time they'd shift across to hold the baby on the left side. And I say, why the left side? And they'd say, either I'm holding it with my left hand because my left hand is stronger because I'm left-handed, or I'm holding it uh, on the left side because my right hand is stronger, so I've got my right hand free. So it's sort of wired up with everything in the brain. Mm, it's a very interesting question, actually, something that you don't really think of. But, like, you know, we got two eyes and two different sort of 
I don't know, nerves behind them? Um, so very interesting question from Dr. Daniel in Launceston. But we're heading to a question about anti-migraine medication from our one and only Jess Perkins. How you doing, Perko? <laughs> Hello, doctors. How are we? Good. Very good. good. What was the question? Um, yeah, I've started taking a migraine medication. I'm a chronic migraine sufferer. And a weird side effect of that medication is that I've noticed that carbonated drinks all taste a bit flat to me. I can taste a bit of a bubble, like I still get a little bit of that sensation, but every carbonated drink I have tastes like it's it's been left out and it's a bit flat. And I'm wondering why that might be. Uh, firstly, it is 100% real. A lot of people complain, complain about that and it is thought that the medications interfere with enzymes that convert carbon dioxide into bicarbonate ions and free protons. A proton is an H+, which is acid, and it interferes with that so you don't get that acid taste. So the carbonated drinks are slightly acid. Not acid enough if they're just pure soda water to damage your teeth, but they're definitely slightly acid. And you're not going to get that nice little sharp bite of acid because the enzyme that converts the carbon dioxide and water into uh, bits of acid is, has been interfered with. One way around it is to get bubbles from nitrogen, which Guinness has. In, it has bubbles of nitrogen instead of carbon dioxide. Oh, okay. I'll hit the Guinness instead. It's <laughs> <laughs> the Guinness. <laughs> Thank you, Perko, for coming through with your question. Thank you. See ya. Well, look, Science Hour with Dr. Carl. That's a wrap, my friend. Dr. Carl, thank you so much for coming through today. Thank you so much, Dr. Tyrone. I'm so impressed that you... See the eyes as the first point of contact with another oh, person. Honestly, you rock. I am as well, Dr. Carl. <laughs>